All right. Well, guys, it is, it is such an honor to be with you. Thank you for fighting the, the nice, beautiful Texas weather out there to be with us this morning. Um, how many of y'all were in shorts yesterday? A few of us, not so today. All right, well, open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 40. We're gonna be in verse 20 today. That's Exodus chapter 40. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. I'm gonna have the scriptures up behind me on the screen. And uh, let me tell you kind of what's going on today. Today is the last uh, sermon that we're gonna be in in the book of Exodus. We've been in Exodus for a really long time, and today is the last one. I'm gonna tell you kind of why. Last week I was in um, Exodus 24. Harlem, I think, was in 30 before that. And basically what's going on for about 15 chapters um, at the end of the book of Exodus is God is just laying out kind of line by line, section by section, chapter by chapter, exactly how he wants the tabernacle to be built. He goes into just very radical detail, and this is what he wants, this is how he wants to look, these are all the things he wants to be used, and, and for everything to be built in a certain way, and it's all culminating up into kind of this moment where the tabernacle is finally built, and we're gonna see here what happens. And so this is gonna be kind of the last sermon in the book of Exodus, because we're gonna see what finally happens when the tabernacle is finally built. And so let's look at this together, Exodus chapter 40, verse 20. All right, I'm gonna read this, couple of verses here. <clears throat> he took the testimony, this is Moses, he took the testimony or the 10 commandments and he put it into the ark. And, and it says, and he put the poles on the ark and the seat of mercy or the mercy seat above the ark. And that's what we talked about last week, how God puts a lid or rather he asked them to put a lid on the top of the ark of the covenant because of our sinfulness, we can't enter into the unabashed presence of a holy God. And it says that he brought the ark into the temple and he set up the veil of the screen and screen the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. And that's important. Once God, or rather Moses, brought the ark of the covenant, which represented the presence of God into the most holy place, God says, I want you to put up a veil. I want you to put up a separation between the presence of God and the people. And so they put up the veil. And then verse 22, he put up the tent or the table and the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside of the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put a lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. <clears throat> and he put in the place of the, uh, the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of uh, a burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and offered it, the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And when Moses and Aaron and the sons washed their hands and their feet, when they, had, when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And look at verse 33 and 34. As they erected the court outside of the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. And so everything that God had told them to do, it's done. Now I want you to watch what happens when finally the tabernacle is completed. In verse 34, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord or the face or the presence of God filled the tabernacle. And so after 15 chapters of God just line by line saying, this is what I want you to do, 
Moses and Aaron and all the, all the sons, they heard it, they did it, they set up the poles, they covered the poles with the tent, they got the Ark of the Covenant, they put in the Ten Commandments, they put on the mercy lid, they set up the veil separating the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, they set up the lamp, they placed the bread, they washed themselves, they consecrated themselves, they did everything God told them to do, and the work was completed. And then, in that moment, the presence of the living God fell on the tabernacle. Now, here's the thing. The entire book of Exodus has been moving to that moment. The, the entire point, the whole point of the entirety of the book of Exodus has been one movement after another to bring us to this place, the, the climax of the book of Exodus, where finally, when the temple, or rather the tabernacle was completed, the presence of the living God returned to his people. That is the point in the climax of the book of Exodus. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of the sermon, is I want to talk about the significance of this moment when God's presence returned to his people. And I'm gonna do something that I've literally never done in 15 years of preaching here at the Austin Stone, and I'm probably never gonna do it again. And I'm gonna go straight running Southern Baptist on you guys. I've got three points, and every one of these three points is gonna start with the same letter, and that same letter is gonna be P. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, this was an accident, I was gone, I was doing some writing, and Holland was preaching, and I didn't read his sermon that week, I usually do, but he um, actually had three points, and they all started with P, and that was a complete accident, this is not planned, and I hope you enjoy it today, because it's never gonna happen again. All right, so here are the three points um, that we're gonna get into today. We're gonna talk about the purpose of this moment. We're gonna see the purpose. What, what is God trying to accomplish when his presence actually shows up? Because it's not just some cool story that we read and move on with our lives. God is doing something very specific in this moment when his presence falls on the tent and the tabernacle. <clears throat> the second thing we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the problem of this moment. Because even though God shows up in his presence, there's still a problem. There's still veils and tents and walls separating us from his presence. And then lastly, we're gonna look at the promise of this moment. Y'all see what I did, those three priests? Pretty creative. A promise of this moment, because this moment is pointing us to something. It's pointing us to a greater reality and a greater experience of God's presence and what that means to you and me. So here's the first point we'll get into today. What is God doing here? What is the purpose of this moment? Where the, where the glory of the Lord, the face of God, the, the presence of Almighty God actually shows up in the tabernacle. Well, the purpose is pretty straightforward, and here's what he's doing. is God is giving to his people right then. God is giving to his people the two greatest gifts that he would ever give them. God was giving to those people the two greatest gifts that he would ever give them, and that's this. He is giving him his presence, or rather, he's giving them his presence and he's giving them the opportunity to worship him in light of his presence. That's what he's doing. Now you might think, you might think, well, Matt, wasn't the greatest gift that God ever gave his people um, their freedom from slavery in Egypt? That would probably be it. And that was the greatest gift that he'd ever given them up to that point. But at this point, when his presence fell, God is giving them something that is greater than freedom from slavery in Egypt. God is giving him or together giving them himself. That's what he's doing. And to understand why that is the greatest gift that, that he has ever given them, you gotta understand why it is that God created man. To understand why his presence is the greatest gift that they're ever gonna receive, you gotta understand why God created man. So a little quiz here. Why is it that God created us? 
Well, don't shout it out, but I just want you to think, how would you answer that? Why did God create man in the first place? All right, now, it's important to understand that God did not create you and me because he needed us. He didn't create us because there was some need that was not being fulfilled in him, and so he created man in order to fulfill that need. <clears throat> and you see that in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Don't turn there. But in Acts 17, 24, this is what uh, the scripture says. And by the way, this is a little spoiler alert to where the scripture is going today, so I apologize for this, but here's the end of the message right here. But I had to add this. Acts 17, 24. Then God made the world and everything that's in it. Paul is writing Acts, and, and he says, or rather Luke wrote Acts, and he says, God made the world and everything that's in it. <clears throat> he says, being the Lord of heaven and earth, who does not live in temples made by man. And look at 25. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so what the scripture just told us is this, is that God is the giver of everything, church. God is the giver of everything. He gave you life, he gave you breath, and then he takes it a step further. He says that not only God give you life, not only did he give you breath, but he's given you everything that you have, everything that you have. And so the point he's making is that God is completely and utterly whole apart from you and me. And so he didn't make you, he didn't make Adam and Eve, your mother and your father, because there was something that we could provide for them. All right, it's important to understand that. Here's the second thing to understand about why God created us is that God didn't create us because he was lonely. God wasn't up in heaven just being like, man, I'm tired of being alone. I'm gonna create man. And we know that all the way back in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Scripture says, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This is before the earth, or rather this is before man was ever created. The scripture says that God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? Who's the our? He's talking about the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They've been together for eternity in perfect harmony forever. John chapter one, verse one. Uh, John is talking about Jesus here. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. <clears throat> and so if God didn't create us because he needed us, and God didn't create us because he was lonely, then why in the world did God create man? Why did he do it? And I, I mean, I, guys, I, we could do a year-long series on why God created man because the depths of it are unbelievable. I'm gonna give you the really short answer and I want you to listen really carefully because what I'm about to tell you is the meaning of life. <laughs> what I'm about to tell you, why God created man is the purpose of why you're alive. So listen carefully, here it is. God created you and me. God created man so that you and I could know him and worship him and enjoy him forever. If you wanna know what the purpose of every single solitary one of our lives is, that is the answer. God created us because, or rather because he is the greatest being in the history of the universe, because he's the most pure, because he's the most complete, because he's the most perfectly loving being that has ever existed. He created us not so that he can just enjoy us or, or take from us or use us like some Greek God in mythology. He created us so that you and I could know him. 
the, the, the most beautiful, the most loving, the most amazing being in history, in the universe, in eternity. He created so that we could know him and love him and worship him and experience his presence forever. And you see that all the way back in the, in the book of Genesis when God creates um, the earth and he, and he creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden. And in the garden, check this out, before sin entered into the picture, Adam and Eve had the unique opportunity to do what it is that they were literally created to do. In the Garden of Eden, before sin entered into the picture, they had the, the amazing and unique opportunity to experience God's presence and be face to face with the Lord and to worship the Lord completely unhindered by anything whatsoever. The Garden of Eden was like the sweet spot where, where, where Adam and Eve got to do every single day what it is that was put in their DNA to do. They got to do it. And so here's the thing. And we know what happened though, is that Adam and Eve sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost something. What did, what did they lose when they sinned? They lost something of infinite value. When they sinned, they lost the presence and the face-to-face -face presence of God. When, when they sinned, they lost that thing that they were created by God to do because we know that sinful creatures cannot be in the presence of an absolutely holy creator. They lost what they were created to do. Now, that's why I said earlier <clears throat> that when God's presence, when God's presence filled the tabernacle and his physical presence showed up with his people, that's why I said that God was giving them the greatest gift that he could ever give them. Because as a human being created by God, and I want you to hear this, that you will never be truly satisfied. You will never be truly fulfilled. And you will never truly be at peace and truly be happy until you are doing what it is that God has created you to do. And I want you to understand that. I want you to know something. It doesn't matter what you do in life. You will never truly be fulfilled and so you are doing exactly what it is that God has created you to do, and that is be in his presence and worship him face to face. And to kind of get our minds around that and to understand that, I want to tell you some of the, the, the things that might help us get our brains around it. And here's a question. Have you ever wondered, have you ever paused long enough to think about why you have some of the desires and some of the hungers that you have inside of you? I mean, every single one of us have these soul hungers and these soul desires that we have inside of us. Have you ever thought about where those things came from? Are they just kind of there because of some accident or are they there because that's how we were created? <clears throat> Think about this. Have you ever wondered why we long for beauty? Have you ever wondered that? Like why, why and it's not just some of us in the room, it's all of us, why we are attracted so deeply to beauty? Have you ever wondered why a mountain range takes your breath away? You know, when you're, you're driving, and I don't know if you've been to, ever been to Colorado, but you're driving through the, the, the plains of New Mexico, and then you come, and all of a sudden you can see the mountains in the distance. There's something for us Texas people. There's something about that moment that you're just in awe of it. What is it about majesty and grandeur that we cannot take our eyes off of? Why is that? Um, have you ever wondered <coughs> why sunsets, like really beautiful sunsets kind of stop you in your tracks. Have you ever wondered that? I saw one last night before the great blue northern blew in, but I was out on my back porch and the sun sets right over my back porch 
And last, it was just gorgeous. The clouds were perfect and it had all those colors that if you tried to describe them, you can't quite describe them. It's like it's pink and it's sort of purple and blue and it's got all these colors. And you take your, your iPhone out because you want to take a picture of it and then you take the picture and the iPhone never truly captures the beauty of it and you're trying to tell your wife and she's like, oh, that's okay. But when you see that sunset, and I don't really, I, I was working on this sermon, I don't really know how to articulate, but I'm gonna try to say it. There's something about when I see that that produces in me a longing. It's like I'm seeing this undescribable, indescribable beauty, and I wanna stay in that moment. It produces in me a longing and a hunger for something else. Beauty does, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Where's that coming from? Why is that inside of me? When you hear a really beautiful song, why does it move you emotionally? When, when you hear an incredible song, why does it make you want to dance? Where is that coming from? Why are we attracted to beautiful people? Why, what is it about beauty in other people that, that captures our attention and our focus? Where is that coming from? <clears throat> is that really the, the result of us being just some cosmic accident, some grand cosmic accident? Is that, is that deep and insatiable hunger we have for beauty? Is that, is that really just like a chemical reaction in our brains that's a result of millions of years of evolution? Or, or is it because that you and I were created by the most beautiful being in the universe? And he literally created us for this purpose, to behold his beauty face to face. He literally put it in your DNA to experience face to face the un, or rather the matchless beauty of our creator. And we had it in the garden. We experienced in the garden, but it was ripped from us because of sin. And the separation is now there because of our sin. And so we spend our entire lives seeing these little glimpses of his beauty and what he created, but they're just fractional glimpses of the beauty that you and I literally were created to behold. Why is it there? <clears throat> Have you ever wondered, this is, this is a big one for me, have you ever wondered why we hunger for fame? Have you ever stopped for just a second and thought about why is that in us? Why do we long so desperately to be known? Why do we want so bad? Where is that coming from in us? Why do we long to be recognized? And check this out. Why does fame, when we encounter actual real fame, why does it move us so deeply? Why do we turn into idiots when we encounter famous people? It's something really cool to think about if you stop. There's only been like one person in my life that we could argue is genuinely famous that I know personally, that I've actually spent a decent amount of time with, and that's Colt McCoy. Colt was quarterback for, the UT, for UT, plays for Washington now. He goes to Stone when football season's over with. You know, I wrote a book together. We go hunting together. Our family spend time together. He's like the only genuinely famous person that I've ever been around. And back when he was a senior, and I first went to dinner with him one time, <clears throat> his senior year, I experienced what it was like when just average people, normal people like you and me, encounter fame. And Colt's totally normal, but he's famous. And, and people's reaction to fame fascinated me. And I've seen it dozens and dozens of times over the year, but I'm going to tell you what it looks like when people encounter fame. Here's what happens. So we're sitting at dinner and somebody's walking past our table at dinner, and they see Colt, right? They see Colt. I'm gonna tell you what they don't do. 
What they don't do is see Colt and just be like, oh, Colt McCoy. And they, come, they walk on by. That's not what they do. What people do is they'll walk and they see Colt McCoy and they stop and they stare at him just like that. <laughs> Every time. And we're sitting there having a conversation and you got some dude standing there just staring at him. Why is that? Why, why when, when people encounter fame, why is it, does it stop them in their tracks? It, fame immediately captures our attention. And here's the next thing that happens, is they stop, it captures their attention, and then almost immediately you see this uncontainable desire for that person to interact with Colt. You see the tension. They're like, I know this is messed up, and I know I shouldn't be doing this, and I know I'm bugging this guy, but I don't care. And so they have this uncontrollable desire to interact with him. They don't want to just see him. They want to meet him. And then inevitably, when they finally get the courage to actually stand up and tap him on the shoulder, and Mr. McCoy, and they don't want to just meet him. That's not enough. They don't walk away at this point. But at that point, they have this really insatiable desire to connect with him. They don't just want to see him. They don't just want to meet him. They want to connect with him. And it's hilarious to watch what people say to this famous person when they meet him. They always try to find this personal connection between them and him. They're like, hey, hey, I, Mr. McCoy, sorry to interrupt you, um, but hey, I just wanted you to know that my second cousin played football with your second cousin. And Colt's like, he's real, he was real nice. He's like, oh, that's really cool. What's, what's one of my second cousins that he played? You know, he's really cool. They're, they're like, I have watched every single solitary play that you've ever played in the history of your football career. And there's this deep desire to have this connection with this person that's famous. And lastly, <coughs> what you see, they don't want to just see him. They don't want to just meet him. They don't want to just connect with him, but they want to associate with him. What do you think the next step is in this process? They pull out their phones and they're like, hey, can I just have a picture? I know you get asked this a lot, but, and then they pull and they do the selfie thing and they get the picture with the famous person in them and they put it on Instagram and show the world I was associated for just a second with this famous person. Now here's, here's the thing. Why in the world do we act like idiots when we encounter famous people? Like where is that coming from? I've seen that same reaction literally dozens of times in different states around the United States and Colt and I have traveled together a couple times around the world in different places and everywhere you meet, somebody knows Colt and they act the exact same way. Why? Where is that coming from? Why do we want so bad, so badly to be associated with fame? Is it possible that we're like that because God created us to know and to connect with and to be associated with the most famous being in the universe? Is it possible that it is literally in our DNA to be friends with and sons of and daughters of the famous one? And we lost it in the garden. We were separated from it in the garden, and so whenever we encounter these little glimpses of it throughout the earth, we just lose our minds because it's literally inside of us to want it and desire it. I got one more for you and we'll move on. That's love. Why do we long so desperately to be loved? Why is that need in us? Because you and I can do all right without a lot of stuff, but we don't do well without love. We don't do well without love. If you have a child and you don't love that child early and often, it will mess up that child for the rest of their lives. Why are we so hungry? For love. Why, why are we on this lifelong journey 
for love? Why are we so obsessed with it? Why has pretty much the vast majority of every song and every uh, poem and, and, and movie that's ever been made and, and every play that's ever been written, why is the centerpiece almost always about love? I mean, what's the answer? We're just animals, right? We're just animals like, like everything else. We, we, is it possible that we're just the result of some amoebic goo that just kind of formed over millions of years? Why do we desperately have this need that's inside of us to be loved? I think maybe it's because of this, that you and I were created by the one who the scripture says is love. And in his great love, he made you and me for this purpose so that he could demonstrate his love to us and so that we could love him in return perfectly without hindrance of sin. But we lost it in the garden. We lost it in the garden. And so we're on this lifelong pursuit of what it is that we were created to do, which is love and worship and be in the presence of our creator God. C.S. Lewis put it really, really well in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. And I'll just read this quote to you. But he said, our lifelong longing, our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always been on the outside, is, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. I love that. He says that the fact that you're feeling all these things, the fact that there seems to be this chasm between you and something, that's not some neurological thing. That is the index of reality. And then he finishes, he says, that sense that in the universe we are strangers and the longing to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is no mere accident. Here's what he just said. But that nagging feeling inside of you that you were created for something more, the reason that there is that nagging feeling inside of you is because, church, you were created for something more. That's what he's saying. And he's saying the only one, the only one that can meet and satisfy the longings inside of you are the ones that put those longings inside of you in the first place, and that is the Lord God Almighty. It's the whole point, by the way, of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the whole book of the Bible that, that's the, that is the point of the whole book, is that you can try all these other things in your life. You can try work, you can try money, you can try alcohol, you can try food, you can try women, you can try fame, and absolutely solitary, none of it will ever meet that longing that's inside of you. Why? The, the, the scripture says because God, listen, God put eternity in the hearts of men. God took eternity and he stuck it in your heart. And the only thing that will ever scratch that eternal itch that you spend your whole life walking around with is the eternal God who put it in you in the first place. And so we're starting to see why this tabernacle, this moment in the tabernacle is so significant. We're starting to see the importance of when God himself in, in, the, in the fullness of his presence shows up why that is such a big deal for you and for me and for them. And our church, here's the answer, listen. The story of Exodus, the story of Exodus is ultimately not a story of the Jewish people being freed from slavery so that they could have a land of their own. 
But the, but the point of the story of the book of Exodus is God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt so that he could be with them and they could worship him. And as they worshiped him in his presence, they could do literally what it is they were created by him to do. That's the whole point. All right, so that's, that's the purpose. Now, the next two are really, really fast. I'm on like the last page and a half of my notes here. So we're gonna go through them quickly, but hear this. It brings us kind of to the second point, which is this, which is what is the, there's a problem with this moment. There's a problem with this moment. God has shown up. His presence, which is the, the deepest longing of our hearts, has finally come in the tabernacle in the wilderness, but there's a problem. Let's read it, Exodus 40, 33. <coughs> it says, and they erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. And they set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Amen. But then look at the next verse because the brakes get put on this thing really, really fast. In verse 35, it says, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this, this is the big, grand moment. This, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for for all these years, for God to finally show up in his glory, for us to finally be able to do what it is we were created to do, and his glory lands on the temple, and his presence fills the tabernacle, but Moses couldn't even go in. Moses couldn't even walk in. The presence of the Lord had finally come. The, the deepest longings of our hearts were just a few feet away. But even Moses couldn't go there. And we talked about it last week. Sinful man can never enter the presence of an absolutely holy God. And this was the problem with this moment. Is that even though God's presence was right there, hear this. Even though God's presence was right there. The deepest need, the deepest longing of our soul. It's right there. There were still walls in between us. There were still veils that were between us and the presence of God. There was still a chasm between us and what we were created to do. And most importantly, more than walls, more than barriers, more than veils, there was the barrier of our sin that was still there that kept us from doing what it is we were created to do. And church, that brings us to our very last point. And that's the promise of this moment. It's the promise of this moment. The promise of moment is this, if God was willing to go to this length to be with his people, if God was willing to go to this length to bring his presence back to his people so that they could worship him, what length would he be willing to go to to remove every barrier, to remove every veil, to remove every separation, and yes, even remove our sin so that we could once again, just like in the Garden of Eden, step back in and face to face without any hindrance and any separation, do what it is we were created to do. The answer to the question is God moved heaven and earth. The, the answer to the question is that God put his own flesh our, our flesh on and came to this earth and laid aside his glory and lived a perfect life and died on a cross so that the veil could be torn and we could walk right into the Holy of Holies and do what we were created to do. 
And so I want to end this message. Instead of just giving you my words, I want to read to you the word of God. And I want you to watch and listen and be in awe of what God did to remove every barrier between us and his presence. Listen carefully. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in John chapter 1, verse 8, John was, the disciple was speaking about himself here. And he says, he, talking about I, was not the light, but I came to bear witness about the light. He's talking about Jesus. He says, the true light, which would give light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light that gives light to everyone, he's coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And look at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the veil was still there we couldn't walk into the holy place and so God says here's what I'm going to do I'm going to go there myself and I'm going to rip the veil myself and so for 33 years he lived a perfect life completely righteous and he walked to the cross and in Matthew 27 45 here's what happened now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour as he hung on the cross Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli, Eli lama sabatini that is my God my God why have you forsaken me And he cried out on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he was bearing your sin. He was carrying your sin, the one that had never sinned. He had never known shame. In this moment right here, your sin was upon him. And the perfect relationship he'd experienced forever was separated because of our sin. And the wrath of Almighty God was being poured out not on you, but on him. Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and say him. And then Jesus cried out again. And with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. He died. I want you to watch what happened in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That might be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. My sin 
Jesus was bearing it in that moment. Everything I've ever done, all the vile stuff I've ever done in my life, he took it from me. He bore it on the cross. And when his blood had been shed, he looked up at his father and he cried out, it is finished. And he died. And the first thing that happens after he gave up his spirit is the veil that separated me from the presence of my heavenly father was torn from top to bottom. And so here's the result. Here's what that means for us today on this day, 2,000 years later, right before Christmas. Here's what that means, that the veil has been torn from top to bottom. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. (coughs) Since then, we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is the cross. That is the, the life of Jesus Christ. Now here's the result. This is it. Verse 16. Let us now then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. The Bible says, now that Jesus has died, now that we have no more sin, now that the barriers have all been broken, trust in the blood of Jesus, and here's what you do next. You run boldly to the throne. And when you get there, you worship like crazy. And when you do, You're going to be doing what God literally created you to do. And you're going to experience something for the first time in your whole life. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be fulfilled. Because that's the reason God made you. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have a bunch to do this week take our affections and our attentions all over the place and so Lord I pray that right now you would just let us savor and think about the fact that we get the opportunity right now to do literally what you put us on this earth to do let's experience your presence worship you face to face God I pray as we sing today that we would be reminded that there's no barrier between you and us there's no veil There's no need to get some water and wash off. There's no need to kill an animal and sprinkle its blood because your son died for us and shed his blood. Our sin is gone. It's been cast as far from us as the east is from the west. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified as we sing to you. As we sing these words, let it not be a Christmas song. Let it it be a song for us of joy and freedom and celebration of what you've done for us. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together.